started. Larry said he was going to be out of the pulpit for Sunday and wanted to know if I'd stop by and help out, and I, I considered it an honor. I look at some of you folks, I mean, we've been together a long time. I, Darcy and I came here right out of seminary. We were just young. In fact, Darcy, Darcy, stand up, because for the people that may not have met you. Darcy and I uh, came straight from seminary here, and we've been married 44 years, but most of us here in the Valley of the Sun, and uh, we, we love watching families develop. I've got gray hair now, and I've been able to see several generations take on life. And, and I'm just grateful for the people that have played a role in my life along the way. Because, you know, kids will drive you nuts. Uh, you wish that Fisher-Price made a little baby taser somewhere along the line. Yeah, not one of those big policemen that will hurt them, but, you know, some little one will lock them up really good for a while. They'll pay attention. Uh, and, and, but finally, they, they, they head on their way, and then they bring back some of their own. And you get to become grandparents. And that's another thing coming over here. To, for some of you I haven't seen in a while, I know that since we've been together, you've become grandparents. Darcy and I now have six. We were invited into the Holy of Holies of Parenting. Darcy says that grandparenting is God's reward for us not selling the kids on Craigslist. And I'm telling you, <laughs> the thought crossed our mind many, many times. But it, it, it is just great to be a part of it all. And here's what I want to do. I want, I want to spend some time talking to you about a subject that I think uh, uh, makes up the, the heart of this church, and that's the grace of God. It doesn't surprise me at all that Pastor Larry has been taking you through a series on the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Sermon on the Mount is when Jesus sat down there with those people and said, I'm going to unpack for you a, a view of life that is is a, a complete extension of the heart of God. And so he started, to, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed, and, and, he, and, he, and he unpacked this thing. And do you know what's interesting? That, that as commentators started weighing in over the years, over the centuries, on the Sermon on the Mount, what was surprising when I first started studying, be becoming a student of the Bible, how often you would come to this passage in Matthew, where he does this, and they would say, now, what he's, rep what he's talking about here is kingdom mindset. This is what it's going to be like when we finally get into heaven. They, it, it, it was beyond them that Jesus meant for this to be the way we act now. And so they just thought, this can't be, can't possibly mean that this is how we're supposed to live now. But that's exactly what he was talking about. And it's because when it comes to grace, I think the Christian movement over the years have, have missed the basic point of it. I think we get, the, we, get, we get the foundational point of it, and that's the salvation thing. You know, when, when we, we talk about grace, we're, we tend to confine it to the work of salvation. Work with me on this. This might get a little theological, but tra track with me. We tend to confine God's grace to salvation, or that I was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, now I see. That kind of thing from amazing grace. And we, don't, we, we can find it there, and then when it comes to living the Christian life, we move back uh, there, and, and we want to get the truth right, and we want to get our orthodoxy right, and we want to make sure that we are behaving the way God would expect us to do. But here's the thing. The grace that Jesus saved us with is not confined to salvation or the theological word justification, he meant for it now to define us and become the very essence of how we treat each other in the work of the Christian life or what the theological word would be sanctification. And, and to illustrate this, let me see if I can use our setting right here to talk about what, it, what it's like when grace is in place or not in place. Because in our homes, our marriages, our homes, I think that if you're going to have grace anywhere, it's got to be there. 
And that's where God meant it to start, for the people you love the most, the people closest to you. So when you came into North today, North Bible, would you say that North Bible has presented itself well to you today? Of course, this is a very handsome looking church. And these are nice people that meet you when you come in. This is a, this is a beautiful setting here. And would you say so far, Aaron and his team have represented God's truth accurately in the way they, they brought the songs that we were using to worship God? Would you say they were theologically correct so far? Uh, they, they were. Now, uh, so far, uh, I hope I've not talked down to anybody. So far, would you say I am equally respectful of you and trying to represent the heart of God, or excuse me, the truth of God accurately? So far? See, when it comes to the truth side of this whole equation, we've got it right. But what if it was 25 degrees in this room the whole time? And you're dressed just like you are right now. You see, it wouldn't matter how right we're getting it. it we, we could get our orthodoxy and our, our truth just right, but it, it would be so cold, you'd be so distracted, you couldn't concentrate. And that's what it's like when we don't have God's grace in place in our marriage and with our kids, our grandkids and our close friends. Because he's like the comfort zone. He's like the temperature in the room. He brings it to, to, to comfort level. And it makes it respond. So I want to talk about what that looks like. Because I think life is complicated enough. And it gets more so as you get older. I look around, I see some of you are young, and you look like you're on the front side of your adult journey. <laughs> I saw something. It was at a circus, and there was a clown doing this trick with these plates. And it reminds me of what it's like to be young on the front side. Because he was spinning plates. Have you ever seen somebody spin plates? They put them on a stick, and they spin them. I've always wanted to do this with someone else's dishes. Here, no, no, what they would do, I don't have the sticks here, but they would put a plate on the stick and they spin it. Get it going real much, and then they can add another, add another, add another, add another. And, and, and of course it became like a crazy thing because the third one would start to wobble or the first one, and he's running around like a crazy person trying to keep them going, and then he'd add another. And I think, you know, that, that's what it's like for us right now in life. We have so many plates we're spinning. And if you're young, you know, maybe you've finished up a degree program, you started your career, you've fallen in love, maybe gotten married, and you have church and friends. The cool thing, though, is there's an app for this, see? And, and, and we can figure life out. And then so we're going along in our married life, and then some of these come along. <laughs> we had four little saucers in our life. And these require a lot more velocity to keep them going straight. And then they want their own plates spun. And they want your help. And so you're spinning your plates and you're spinning your saucers and you think, wow, this is crazy. But you pick up a rhythm. Okay, I figured this out. Then one of these comes along. This is a teenager. <laughs> not a saucer anymore. And it's not a plate yet. It just thinks it is. It wants all the privileges of a plate. But it doesn't have any money. And it sure has a mind of its own when you try and put some spin on it, doesn't it? Well, there was a time when we were, of our four kids, three of them were saucers, or, or three of them were, uh, uh, I mean, uh, platters at one time. And so you just go crazy. And, and, and how do we balance this all out? Well, the cool thing is, is that is God meant for his grace to help us lead away. And what I want to do is I want to um, I wanna, uh, show you an uh, example of a grace-based family in the Bible. And then I want to, from there, I want to I jump into giving you 
So, some wonderful freedoms that you can give the people you love that are, that are they're right at the heart of God's grace. There's a wonderful story in the Bible in Luke chapter 2. And if I say Luke 2 and you know your Bible, then you, that should ring a bell. There's a very famous story in Luke chapter 2. That's the Christmas story. But that's not the one we're going to look at. <laughs> it's a wonderful story, but there's also another story of Jesus' childhood. The, the only other one in the Bible is tagged on to the end of this chapter. Because uh, uh, Luke goes and talks about Jesus being born in Bethlehem, the very famous story. But then he also tags on a story of, of an incident that happened in, in Jesus' life when he was 12 years old. And I want to read that to you because it's a great example of active grace played out in a family. Watch, now, now, I'm going to start in verse 39 of Luke 2. And 39 and 40 are transition verses where Luke has taken us out of the Bethlehem story, and then he's, he's bringing us into this story of Jesus at 12. Watch how he does this. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew. He became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, what he means by that, he's basically saying the grace of God was upon him because he was living in a home that had an atmosphere of grace. Now watch this, he goes specific, verse 41. Every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Okay, let's hit the pause button for a second. If this were your first time ever hearing this story, you might be thinking, what was... What did the Heavenly Father have in mind when he assigned the earthly care of his only begotten son to these two people? They had to actually take off and leave him behind in the big city and be unaware of it. That sounds like child neglect. But it's not as you read on. Now, by the way, I can completely understand taking off and leaving your kids behind and being totally aware of it. I mean, we've thought of doing that many times. But, but this looks like they were negligent until you read on, you realize nothing unusual is going on. So thinking, verse 44, thinking he was in their company or their caravan, their entourage of friends and family, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. So there, nothing unusual is going on. For, first of all, this isn't a little boy, this is a 12-year-old boy. You let them out of sight and over the horizon. They're moving in a large entourage of friends and family. Everybody knows everyone. And you know the rule of thumb, in a, th in, a, in a situation like that, if you're an adult in that situation, you're responsible for whatever kid is near you. So aunts and uncles, that's normal. And, and plus, this is the most responsible, reliable 12-year-old two people ever got the raise. So they're not worried until dinner time comes and he doesn't show up. Like, we got a problem. This is a boy. He's 12. It's dinner. <laughs> they show up to top their tank. So it says when they, think, when they did not find him, uh, when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, wait a minute. Let's stop and put ourselves in their, their, their position for just, just a second here. It's been three days. Three days. They've been turning Jerusalem upside down looking for this kid. They went to all the places that they assumed he'd be, and they went to all the places they hoped he wasn't, but you had to check. 
They had to go to the emergency room. They had to go to the, the juvenile lockup, whatever. They're looking. It's night, and they're in their little motel. They're trying to get some sleep to pick up the hunt at dawn. Mary's lying in bed thinking, I've misplaced God. Boy, am I going to be in trouble for this one. And then when they find him, they realize not only is he okay, but he's been okay. The three days, they haven't been. Are you with me? That causes two big emotions to fight for first position. First one is relief. He's fine. Second is what? What? Anger. Come on. Yeah, they're just like we are. They're angry. They just want to shake him. And you can do it because they're 12. Their heads are on good by then. You just want to shake them. <laughs> what were you thinking? Mary speaks for the two of them. Look what she says. Her mom, uh, Mary said, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Now you can uh, tell the exasperation. Next verse, Jesus said, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now, how are they supposed to know that? Well, you got to do a little detective work. But there is one thing that happened that he might be referring to, and that is... They had angels appear to them. Remember, Gabriel came to both of them and said, hey, look, you're going to have a son. He's under unusual circumstances. He's God's son. He's got an agenda. Work with him. Okay, so it's like he's saying, Mom, Dad, come on, buy a vowel. This isn't that tough. We sent you angels. Next verse. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. They didn't get it. Okay, so now something's got to happen. What's going to happen? Verse 51, next verse. Then he went down and answered with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Right there, I just read to you what a grace-based family is like in action. You say, how so? Well, you see, because they responded differently in that situation than I think most of us would. Because, first of all, look, what Joseph could have spoken up and said, Jesus, you are so grounded, it's unbelievable. Don't plan a personal life for an indefinite period of time. I'm so mad at you. Jesus could have pulled some fairly serious divine artillery out uh, uh, now, about now himself. He could have said, excuse me, but I think you've forgotten who you're dealing with here. How about I refresh your memory? You know, it was me who had that original line, let there be light. I said that. I'm the one. I made you. I made the air you're breathing, the gravity that's holding you down. I could write out your DNA code. You don't even know what I'm talking about. You are not going to tell me what I can or can't do. He had the right to say that. He didn't exercise it. Because he was dealing with his earthly guardians in grace. And grace and obedience go hand in hand. And look at the next, and then it says, and Mary treasured all these things in her heart. Last time I checked, you treasure things you value. And yet, uh, the, the two verses before that, she's yelling at him, and the verse before it says she didn't understand what was going on. And yet she treasured this. She says, I don't get this, Lord. I don't understand everything, but I'm going to value this. See, grace is responding differently in human situations than we typically would in our human default mode. And when Jesus went to all that trouble to die on the cross for our sins, to put that blood on the line, to set us free through the power of his grace, he says, I want this grace now to become your defining feature. So what would that look like? Here's what I'd like to do for the rest of our time. I'd like to show you four wonderful freedoms that, that I think grace-based families 
give one another. And they're direct extensions of God's heart of grace. Let's look together. The first one is grace-based families give the people they love the freedom to be different. To be different. And that might seem kind of tame here, but let me give you some synonyms for different so you know where I'm coming from. In Sweden, you pay attention on this one. I want you to be able to give me a report back after this. Our friends from over in Europe. Or Switzerland. Switzerland. I got it wrong. Switzerland. I got it way wrong. Our friends from Switzerland. By the way, everybody visit with them afterwards. They came a long way to say hi to you guys. Here's some synonyms for different. Weird. Bizarre. Strange. Goofy. Quirky. Grace-based homes have room for those kind of kids. But you know what a typical Christian home, you know what the standard problems in typical Christian homes are? They're either fear-based homes or they're spiritual performance-based homes. And I want to tell you, fear-based homes and performance-based homes have no room for weird, bizarre, strange, goofy, quirky kids. These kind of kids annoy them and bug them. You say, stop that. Why? Well, it, but it, it annoys me. And I'm not talking about kids doing anything wrong or morally wrong. It just bothers us. And yet they're not doing anything wrong. For instance, you have a little boy. Let's say you have a little boy, you send him in the backyard to play. What will he do? He'll do things like, he'll go and do a headbutt right into a tree. Boom! And hit that thing with his head. What is wrong with you? He's a little boy. Then he'll go run it right into the garage door. You have a little girl? Let's say she's by her, she's, by, she's right now the only girl in the family, and she's out playing by herself. She is never alone. That girl is never alone. She has friends. She's talking with them. She has friends, and they all have names. She has her imaginary friend. Or you give her a pile of rocks. She'll make a family. This is Earl. He's the dad. Here's mom. Her name's Martha. You give her a bunch of Barbie dolls. What will she do? She'll put them in a semicircle, play the view, and they'll sit there and argue over some <laughs> issue. Her little brother comes in. He picks up a Barbie doll. Well, he'll bite the head off and throw it like a grenade. Make explosive. They're weird. They're children. Then they become teenagers. And then uh, they do really bizarre things. Let's say uh, he, a kid comes home, and he's been over at his friend's house, and he wanted to get a new hairdo, so his friend took the weed whacker to his hair and then got it in his mother's medicine cabinet, got out the L'Oreal or Clairol or something, mixed a bunch of colors together, and it came out a little pink, a little green, a little yellow, a little, a little blue, spiked it out. He comes in to show his mother his new hairdo. It's not uncommon for a woman in desperation to look at that and say something like, I don't think Jesus would be very pleased with your hair. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that when we're desperate, we drop the biggest name we know? I don't think Jesus would be very... You know what I do for my Bible reading every year is I read through the Bible. And because right now, kids' hair is pretty conservative, but it's gone through cycles. I've lived through several. I was in the middle of one as a teenager where the hair is really wild. And I've had to referee these fights between parents and kids over this. And, and, and I thought, what does the Bible actually say about this? What does he say about hair? And I've read the entire Bible, and here's basically what God has to say about hair. He says, I don't care. It's your hair. Express yourself. You can use it as a lab experiment for all I care. It's your hair. Some of you might want to grab the chance while you can. Because it's going to bail on you. You're not going to have it. <laughs> now, now, can you as a parent have arbitrary standards on how your kid's hairstyle is? And the answer is yes, you're the parent. Of course you can. 
Just don't make it a moral issue when it's not. Don't make it a biblical issue when it's not. When we do this with, whether it's hair or style or music or uh, all these things where, where it's clearly just a personal taste thing rather than an, an actual moral. When we, when we make moral or biblical issues out of non-moral and biblical issues, basically we shove a wedge between that kid's heart and ourself and that kid's heart and God. See, this is the antithesis of grace. God is a God of variety. Why should we expect all of our kids or our family to be a certain way or all Christian families to be a certain way? God has not striped two zebras the same yet. He has not painted two sunsets the same yet. By the way, all those beautiful sunsets he's done in original every night, do you know how many primary colors there are? Do anybody remember? Three. He's done all that with just three, mixing, mixing up three different colors. He hasn't printed two Says the fingerprints the same. God has got a variety. Why shouldn't we welcome this? But what happens is because we don't realize just how much, how selfish we are in our life, whether it's in marriage or relationships, where the right way to do it is the way I would want you to do it or the way I would do it. But that's not the heart of God. And that's why he says, look, my grace can come to the rescue on this. It can bring the best out of everybody. You know, let me show you some scripture on this because Paul was bringing, uh, he, he was bringing his book of Romans to an end. And, and he had, and from Romans 12 on up, he was dealing with very practical things on a church that brought a whole lot of different types of styles of people together. He worked it through, and now he's kind of summarizing it. Look what he says. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at this. Therefore, accept one another as Christ has accepted you for the glory of God. And when God makes us so unique and different, be it man or male or female, boys or girls, uh, you know, uh, arts and croissants type, uh, uh, bean counter types, you know, big vision types, nitpicker types, all that stuff. We need them all. And each one should be celebrated instead of marginalized. Here's another one. Paul, uh, excuse me, King David was writing this psalm, Psalm 139. I love it. Right in the, in the middle of this psalm, he says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. So when we, when we marginalize the people we love on things that are just arbitrary, they're our personal taste, we are undermining the glory of God. God's grace says, no, 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 I don't do that with you. Don't do that with him. In fact, I can summarize grace-based families and uh, grace-based parenting in one sentence. And it's simply, treat your kids the way I treat you. That's all it is. A grace-filled marriage is simply, treat your spouse the way I treat you. And we know who the spouse of Jesus, of God is in the Bible because he says it's the church. What did he do for the church to show how much he loved? He died for the church. He showed how much he cared. And he says, that, that, bring that kind of care to one another. Look at this second one. Grace-based families give the people they love the freedom to be vulnerable. To be vulnerable. Meaning that, that they're, they, they're in a situation where they don't have to wear masks around the people, the adults in their life, or their, people, their friends. That their, their, their inadequacies, their fears, can come to the surface without fear of being attacked. I was going into the ninth grade at a large high school in Annapolis, Maryland, called Annapolis High School. It would be like a, a 5A, 6A level school now. And I was very excited because I was going to play football for their famous 
Coach, the girls were prettier, the rock and roll was louder, there was more of both. This is going to be great. Except that summer, between my eighth and ninth year, several hundred of us incoming freshmen got letters in the mail from the Board of Education saying that because of overcrowded conditions, we were being annexed to an elementary school in downtown Annapolis. So instead of going to the big high school, a couple hundred of us are in this elementary school. And there were many trade-offs. Probably the biggest one was in the area of phys ed, because normally in phys ed, you would put on a phys ed outfit, and then you'd uh, go out and play, whatever, and it's a humid area, you sweat, no problem, you take a shower, put your school clothes back on. We didn't have that option. We had to do everything in our school clothes. There was a gymnasium on the second floor of a building a couple blocks from the school, and I went in there one winter morning for phys ed. And as soon as I walked in there, I got very excited because there was a trampoline open in the middle of the gym. And I got excited because I'd never jumped on one before. They weren't pieces of equipment back then in backyards. Well, the coach, the PE coach came out and uh, we all gathered around the trampoline and he kind of looked around at all of us. He came back to me, he said, Kimmel, take off your shoes, leave on your socks, climb up here, follow my instructions. So I pulled my shoes off and I climbed up, but as I did, I realized I had holes in both of my socks. Not one, both. And one of my friends thought everybody should notice this if they hadn't already, and he said, you know, we ought to take up a collection, buy Tim some real socks. This is sad. It was like he was denigrating my family's economics, which, by the way, we were at the bottom of the middle class, the lower part of it. We paid our bills in time and we didn't miss a meal. But other than that, we didn't have a lot of extra. We went by the mantra, get as much mileage out of your clothing as you can. And up to that point, I thought that was a good idea until I was up there. I was jumping, I was doing exactly what he was telling me to do. But all I could think about were my toes sticking out. When my term was over, I stood down, the other guys are jumping, and I'm thinking, I'm gonna go home, I'm gonna get out my sock drawer, I'm gonna darn every pair of socks. I will never let this happen to me again. This just became one of the big defining moments. Now, by the way, if that happened to me now, I could care less. But when you're in that corridor of time, that 14, 15, 16, that's a time when kids are unusually self-conscious. Well, the other guys jumped, the bell rang. He dis- the coach dismissed us. He took off. I went, got on my shoes, went down. There was a stage at the end. I got my coat on and my books, and I went out the side door, and I was almost at the bottom of the stairs when I heard my name. Kimmel, wait up. It was the coach. He came down, he pulled me aside. He said, hey, Tim. I'll tell you why I called on you to do the demonstration. Tim, you're the, most, you're the most agile student in my class. And then he reached down and he untied his shoe and he had a big old hole in his sock. And he stood there wiggling his toe saying, you know, us agile guys are tough on socks, man. <laughs> now go to class. So I was walking over to class and the whole way I'm thinking, what's agile? Because I had never heard the word before. I had no clue what he was just said to me. But I was going to an English class, and they had these big dictionaries, and they actually loved it when you looked up a word by, you know, without a gun held to your head. And I went over and I looked up agile. And I read for the first time in my life that I could move with speed, ease, elegance, and liveliness. And I read for the first time in my life that I was mentally alert and quick-witted. No one had ever told me that before. I got a piece of paper. I wrote that one down and I memorized it. And I did a 180 degree turn in two major areas of my life, academics and athletics. In fact, a couple weeks later they had this contest, who could do the most sit-ups in the ninth grade? Now they weren't these crunch things we do today. They were, they were things that if 
long since outlawed from the public school system for lower back injury, where you had to lay flat. They didn't even figure out bending the knees. You had to lay flat. Somebody held your heels down, which, by the way, hurt like mad, and you had to come all the way up and touch the opposite knee with your elbow for it to count. I set the record that year. The only reason I did so many is I wanted to set the record, and the guy next to me wouldn't quit. And so I just kept going until he quit, and I did one more and got it. We, we, we sat up through phys ed class. They let us keep going. We sat up through English class and through most of lunch. They were sending out runners. They're up to 493. They're up to 561. My stomach muscles hurt for days after that. But I didn't care because I was agile. <laughs> you know, it took a while for me to put the pieces together to figure out why the coach disappeared so quickly after class. He, he had to get in his office, get his shoe off, get the scissors out, cut the hole in his sock, put the shoe on, and chase me down. He didn't go around with holes in his socks. He was a PE teacher. They give them shoes and socks as part of the deal. They always had the best stuff. But he saw a vulnerable kid that needed help. And he touched his life with grace. Now listen. Our children and grandchildren have these kind of moments all the time. Someone has described childhood as a 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year battle to keep from being embarrassed. We need to have grace waiting for them. They don't need to be marginalized or dismissed or you cowboy up or get over it, stop that drama, I don't need this, on and on and on. They're hurting. And they need help. And God offers that in His grace. It's interesting. God gave the Apostle Paul a dilemma. We don't know what it was. He just referred to it as his thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. And Paul really felt this was distracting him from ministering. He went to God several times and asked him to take it away. And we read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But each time God said no. And finally, look at the punchline in verse 9. God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so we have a chance with the people we love, whether it's a spouse or child, to be the grace there that helps them through these rough times in their life. Grace-based families give the people they love the freedom to be different and vulnerable. I'll give you another verse on vulnerable that I think is really strong, and that's Colossians 4, 6. Look at this. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So we, we give them the freedom to be different, freedom to be vulnerable. Thirdly, grace-based families give the people they love the freedom to be candid. To be candid, where they could tell you what's on their mind, even if it's stuff you're not excited about hearing. Darcy and I knew. We knew when we started having kids that we would get it wrong. We, we, we'd, we'd step over the line. We knew it. And we didn't want to. We wanted to do as good a job as possible, but we knew we would. So we built in something early on to try and accommodate this. We, we, we came with this idea, we called it, what's your beef night? And we do this, you know, every few months where the kids could, we call it what's your beef night, and they could eat, they could order anything and they wanted off the Kimmel menu, and then they could go around during that meal and they could say anything that Darcy or I had done that either frustrated them or embarrassed them or, or hurt them. And, and here's all we were allowed to do, and that is to ask for forgiveness. Weren't able to put it in context or put the bigger picture. They'd say, this, this game's fixed. We'll never. No, we just asked for forgiveness. Now, we couldn't say things like, you made me go to school or do my homework. No, we all have to do that stuff. We're not talking about that stuff. It's where we clearly got it wrong. Because we wanted them to know 
you have a safe outlet here to talk with us about this. And we wanted to, we wanted to put it in place that they could know at any time they could do that. Our son Cody was uh, in high school. He finished his homework, and he, had, uh, he was getting ready to go to bed. He said, it was springtime, and he, he came to me and said, Oh, Dad, I forgot to mention, I need you to sign me out of class tomorrow at 12. And I need you to call first thing in the morning. And I said, Why? What's up? He said, Well, it's the opening day of the Diamondbacks. And my friend Stephen has got tickets right behind the dugout, and he invited me to go. Now, you need to know something. The Diamondbacks had beaten the New York Yankees the year before in a World Series. It's a big opening game. But for some stupid reason, I thought I should teach my boy about personal responsibility. I said, Cody, you're a student. You go to school at 8, you get out at 3. You don't get to take off just because something, something's fun. But, Dad, they're going to have F-16s fly over. I went back to my lecture. But it's like you have a job. We all have jobs. There's always fun things out there. You've got to stay on job till quitting time. Dad, I think Randy Johnson's going to be in the mound. I came back to my lecture. You can just see him getting more and more frustrated. And I went on, and he said, Dad, I think Alice Cooper's going to sing the national anthem. You can just see the poor kid. And finally, he got real quiet. He said, Dad, listen, I bring you home straight A's. All I've ever brought you home are straight A's. I can't bring you home any better grades than I'm bringing you. Now, you need to decide whether I can go to that game. It was like a big hand came right down out of the cloud and did one of these right on the top of my head. <laughs> Will you sign him out? Are you an idiot? What's your problem? Sign the boy out. And here's what's, here's what's really interesting. Those straight A's didn't come from his father's side of the gene pool. They came from his mother's, man. I struggled in school. I worked hard. I felt you should have vowels and consonants on a report card. See, look, Dad, I think it's one of them find-a-word games. I know, Steve, three, could you sign the bottom? I mean, you know, it's so stupid. Here's another thing. I would have never asked my dad to sign me out of school. I'd have just played hooky. I'd have ditched. I reached in my pocket, I took out two large bills and handed it to him, and I said, Cody, make sure you buy the big drinks and the big hot dogs for you and Stephen, and Cody, please forgive me for being such an idiot. You know, as you get older, the memories of childhood fade. It's not uncommon, you get my age, where a lot of childhood is just a blur. And you know, this incident may well be one of those things that fades from his mind as he gets older. But had I held my ground and refused to sign him out, he'd have never forgotten to the day he died. What a bonehead he had for a father. Listen, we get it wrong sometimes. We get it wrong. They've got to have an outlet to talk with us. It might even be where their faith is on, 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 on trial. And, and, and they, they come in and say, look, I'm, I'm just not buying that Jesus is the only way or the Bible is the, the final authority. This is not a time to panic and hire some theologian from Phoenix Seminary and duct tape him to your kid's face. Smarter kids than yours and mine have questioned these things. This is a time to remain calm while their faith is on trial. Show them what a person looks like who has clear confidence and trust in God while they're working through that. And see, that's candor. Where did I get this from? If you go to, um, in Hebrews chapter 4, to set it up, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews is saying, we don't have a high priest that doesn't understand, he's referring to Jesus, we, we don't have a high priest that doesn't understand what it's like to be in our skin. He was always tempted like we are yet without sin. Then look what he says here. He says, so let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive, look at this, mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
Have you ever been mad at God? Because I have. My mother died a lot younger than I thought was fair, was reasonable. God says, come to me, I have a big chest. I'm not necessarily gonna explain everything to you, to your satisfaction, but I understand what it's like to be in your skin. I understand it, come to me. You're gonna find mercy waiting for you. And then, I love this one also from Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now, here's the thing. Cody spoke, uh, spoke to me respectfully. Doesn't mean he could just, you know, the kids can just yell, yell at us any way they want. We raise the odds that our kids will speak respectfully to us when they're frustrated with us. If we speak respectfully to them, when we're frustrated with them or where they're get, when they're getting it wrong. You see, this, this, this should be something that, and God's grace coming through us makes that a lot easier. So grace-based families give the people they love the freedom to be different, vulnerable, candid. Lastly, they, they give the people they love the freedom to make mistakes. To make mistakes. Another way of saying is they give them the freedom to be imperfect. Now, I'm not saying by that that there aren't consequences for their sin, because uh, discipline and correction are a form of grace. Look at this, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and 6. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, or the discipline of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. So he knows we will get it wrong, but that doesn't mean the end of a relationship with him, no matter what it is. And if home is where life makes up its mind, and I believe it is, then it should be a place where are, uh, where disappointments are processed, where mistakes never end, end, end the relationship, no matter how bad it is. And, and, and so, where did, I, where did I get all these things from? I got them from how Jesus deals with you and me. He gives us the freedom to be different and vulnerable and can't make mistakes, to be imperfect. And I think it's very difficult to give this to the people we love if we haven't first received it. You may be here, and this whole concept of God's grace sounds really fine, except you've never made it personal. You don't know what it's like to put your, actually come to God and say, I realize now that, that, that I can't get to you on my own. That's why you came to me. And that my sin problem was going to separate me from you forever. And, 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 and the way I had to pay for it was to die for my sin. But you came and died in my place. And because of that, now I can be set free from my sin. You can forgive me. And, and on top of that, Give me eternal life in a relationship with you. That's the gospel. If you've never received that in your heart, there's going to be someone over here at the end to, to pray with you. Just make a beeline for it. I accepted Jesus in a church. I love the, this be the day you do too, if, the, if, if, if that's what God's tugging on your heart to do. And when we make these the DNA of the people we love, our spouse, our kids, the people, our friends, and so it's amazing how you raise the stock value of everybody in the family picture because these four freedoms automatically bring the best out of the people we love. Let me close with this quick story. And it's just to remind us that the window of opportunity to touch our children, especially with grace, is not open as long as we think it is. I was reminded of this one uh, Saturday morning when our daughter Shiloh awakened me before dawn. She came in and she shook me awake and said, Dad, Dad, it's time to get up and go on our date. She was about like five years old, and I'd promised her the night before I'd take her out on a breakfast date. Then she got up, got ready, fixed her hair, and, and I looked at the clock and said, honey, it's still dark out. 
But she said, but dad, I, I, I picked this outfit out for you. I did my hair for you. And I knew where she wanted to go was open because it's open all the time. It's Circle K. That's where she said she wanted me to take her <laughs> to a convenience store. And so I thought, okay, that's great. I got up, got ready. This will be fun. We got, we got over to the Circle K right about dawn. And we went in and she picked out some juice, a couple of donuts. I got a cup of coffee, paper, everything. And we went out, we sat on the curb on the side of the Circle K to have our date. And, you know, just as the sun was starting to rise, we're sitting here and there's a dumpster over here, but we're fine. We're over here. Everything's fine. And, and we're, we're visiting. And she, and she uh, I let her do the talking and, and she wanted to talk about the Sleeping Beauty video that we got for her. She watched it several times, yapping away about Sleeping Beauty. And I said, Shadow, what's your favorite part of that movie? Oh, Daddy, I love the part at the end when the handsome prince and Sleeping Beauty dance together in a castle. Nah, well, that's my favorite part because I'd watched it with her. And I don't know what provoked me to do this. I decided to reenact it. So I put everything back in the bags and I picked Shiloh up right there. And I started singing that song, I know you, I waltz with you once upon a dream. We were just going around as we were coming around. I looked over, there were some new homes that had just been built just right behind the thing. And there was a guy, I could see him. He was sitting in his breakfast area looking at me, just staring at me. And I thought, he's over there stirring his coffee, calling his wife right now. Honey, honey, quick, quick, look. There's an idiot over to Circle K, dancing with some little girl next to a dumpster. <laughs> but another thought crossed my mind. Then in a very brief period of time, some young man was going to come along and tap me on the shoulder and say, Mr. Kimmel, may I cut in? And waltz that girl out of my life for good. Turned out his name was Ian. He's a wonderful young man. He just showed up so much sooner than I thought it was going to be. It went so fast. Listen, I know for some of you young parents, you're in the middle of it all. And you just think, man, these days are so long. They are. But I'm telling you, the years are short. I'm there very short. So seize the day and see that opportunity with grace. Let me pray for you. Lord, uh, you love everybody in this room so much. You love them intimately. You, you know all about them. And, uh, oh, Lord, uh, I, I know um, what our greatest need is to, to surrender all of our life to you, to trust you, to love you, and Lord, I just pray that you'll help these words that we've shared and these songs we've sung remind us how to let you live through us. We want to be vessels of your grace to these people that you put us in our life and help them sense your real grace in the way we treat them and love them. In Jesus' name, amen.